0: Previously in First Peter, Peter encourages readers to live their blessed life by being prepared, obedient, and holy. Preparation is continuously saturating one's mind in God's Word. Obedience is following the law of God. Holiness is exhibiting a lifestyle different from this hostile pagan world. Of these three actions, the hardest is to be holy, notably when scattered and suffering. In the Greek, 1 Peter 1,17 to 21, forms one single sentence, and is a midrash or exegesis on the quote from Leviticus 19:2, "You shall be holy, for I am holy." Striving to be holy is not easy, nor does it come automatically. It requires motivation. And Peter provides, in 1 Peter 1,17 to 21, Peter provides two motivations for holy living. The chastening of God and the cost of redemption. The chastening of God and the cost of redemption. The first motivation to holiness is the chastening of God, the Father, and judge of believers. 1 Peter 1.17 If you address as the Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. The phrase, if you address as father, the one, is a first-class conditional statement which assumes the statement to be true. As such, the if can be translated as since, since you address as father. The term address means to call upon God for assistance and protection. Hence, these believers were habitually calling upon God for help. The Christian relationship with God is a father-son or father-child relationship. Therefore, as believers call upon God, they are to address Him as Father. Throughout the Old Testament, believers called upon God as Father. Psalm 89, 26, He will cry to me, You are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. Jeremiah three nineteen: I said, You shall call me my Father, and not turn away from following me. When Jesus demonstrated to the disciples how to pray, he began with our Father in Matthew 6 9. And the reason why we can call God our Father is due to the fact that we have been adopted into his family. Romans 8:15, for you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Galatians 4, 5, and 6. So that he might redeem you who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons, because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The phrase Abba, Father, is significant in helping us to understand how God relates to his children. In the Greek it reads Abba Ha Pater, Father the Father. Now Abba is the Aramaic term for Father. On the three occasions uh, that it's used in the New Testament, Abba is always defined by the Greek term Pater for those who are not literate in Aramaic. Abba was used by the Jews when addressing God in prayer. As such it gradually acquired the nature of a most sacred, proper name for God. In 1971, Joachim Jeremias defined Abba as the chatter of a small child, a children's word used in everyday talk. Though he did not use the term daddy, Others who came after him made that connection. However, Hebrew and New Testament scholars have taken umbrage with such an understanding of the term. Uh, George Shelbert stated, In the Aramaic language of the time of Jesus, there was absolutely no other word than Abba available if Jesus wished to speak of or address God as Father. Geza Vermes claims that there seems to be no linguistic support for Jeremiah's definition. He goes on to state that Abba can only be understood as father or my father. James Barr states that Abba was not a childish expression comparable with daddy. It was a more solemn, responsible adult address to a father. He also stated that the New Testament writers were, quote, well aware that the nuance is not that of daddy, but of father. The semantics of Abba itself all agree in supporting the nuance father than the nuance daddy. Thus, when Jesus demonstrates that we are to address God as our father, he is not praying to daddy, but invoking the most sacred proper name for God that his children can utter. Though we are God's children and have open access to him, we must not tread upon that sacred ground with no less than the sacred title, Father. Understanding this father-child relationship, it follows that a good parent demands obedience and functions as a judge when their child is disobedient. Since God is the father of believers, he is also their judge. Nevertheless, we have seemingly lost this truth. Over a hundred years ago, Alexander McLaren wrote this. He said, I suppose in Peter's day, as in our days, now remember, this is a hundred years ago he's saying this, there were people that so fell in love with one aspect of the divine nature that they had no eyes for any other, and who so magnified the thought of the Father that they forgot the thought of the judge. That error has been committed over and over again in all ages so that the church as a whole, one may say, has gone swaying from one extreme to the other and has rent these two conceptions widely apart and sometimes has been foolish enough to pit them against each other, instead of doing as Peter does here, braiding them together as both conspiring to one result, the production in the Christian heart of a wholesome awe. In striving to be holy, we must remember that our loving Father is our just judge. F.W. Bear stated, Our knowledge of Him as Father must not dispel our dread of Him as our judge. It must not lead to presumption but to humility. It must not induce moral laxity as if by our new position we were exempted from rendering an account to Him. To magnify one aspect of God while ignoring the other, is to create a false God and to be guilty of idolatry. Are we guilty of that? Do we so focus on one aspect of God that we neglect His other attributes or aspects? And if so, we must acknowledge that we are guilty of idolatry and repent of it. Because God is judge, we must live in holiness. Additionally, there is a glibness in the way believers, even you and I, talk to and about God. He is not the man upstairs. He is not a higher power. He is not JC or any other such drivel. Such references are irreverent and display a lack of understanding of who and what God is. He is the Father and the Judge. Therefore, believers must cultivate, you and I must cultivate an attitude of godly fear. You see, as judge, God impartially judges Peter learned this truth when God sent him to Cornelius in Acts 10.34. Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. Impartiality means without receiving the face or without respect of persons. In other words, God does not judge on the basis of outward appearance. 1 Samuel 16.7 But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God shows no favoritism for any reason. Whether rich or poor, Jew or Gentile, master or servant, God does not discriminate." Romans 2.11, there is no partiality with God. Colossians 3.25, for he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. The only means by which God judges people is according to each one's work, as verse 17 states. Judgment according to one's work is an Old Testament concept. Psalm 28, verse 4. Requite them according to their work and according to the evil of their practices. Requite them according to the deeds of their hand. Repay them their recompense. Jeremiah seventeen, ten: I, the Lord, search the heart, I test the mind, even to give each man according to his ways, according to the result of his deeds. Paul taught this concept to the believers in Rome in Romans 2.6. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each person according to his deeds. And if you look up Romans 2.6 and you're using NASB or uh, another, another translation, you may note that the phrase will render to each person according to his deeds is all in caps because Paul's quoting the Old Testament. As well... This concept is the basis for Paul's rebuke of Alexander the coppersmith. Second Timothy four fourteen. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord repay him according to his deeds. And the grounds for this judgment is found in Deuteronomy eleven, twenty six to twenty eight. See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing if you listen to the commandments of the Lord your God, which I am commanding you today, and the curse if you do not listen to the commandments of the Lord your God. Now, while we're saved by grace, we need to understand that we are going to be judged according to our works. We will be blessed for obedience, or we will be punished for disobedience. Therefore, believer, you need to examine yourself. As 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, Test yourself to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? Are you regularly examining yourself, testing yourself? And by that, it doesn't mean determine whether or not you're saved. It means examine what you're doing. Is what you're doing obedience or disobedience? Now, the judgment spoken of in this context does not occur at the judgment seat of Christ, but in the present age. As sons or children of God, we should expect to be disciplined. In Hebrews twelve, five and six, Paul quoting Proverbs three, eleven and twelve demonstrates that God disciplines those he loves. He says in Hebrews twelve five and six, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. Quote, My son do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him, for those whom the Lord loves he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. Again, if you're reading that in the NASB, uh, you'll note that from the phrase my son to the end of verse 6, it's all in capital letters. Again, indicating that this is an Old Testament quote. And it's Proverbs 3, 11 to 12. So this was something that the early church, New Testament believers, were very much aware of. Those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. Okay, God disciplines those He loves. As well, the text demonstrates that discipline is a sign of sonship. He scourges every son whom He receives. Therefore, let's not forget God's discipline, but let's learn from God's discipline. See, God's discipline is the painful consequences that result from disobedience. Hebrews 12, 7 says, It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Discipline refers to training up a child. It is not merely a punishment, but rather a corrective measure to produce morality and maturity. Because God disciplines His children, we learn to endure, that is, we learn to persevere under suffering and persecution. Those who claim to be believers but never experience God's discipline are illegitimate children and not sons. Hebrews 12.8 But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. In the Roman culture, an illegitimate child was one born of a slave or concubine. Jewish law stated that that one who was illegitimate had no right of inheritance, no right to marry within Jewish society, and no right to be buried in a Jewish cemetery. Now, friend, if you're an illegitimate believer, in other words, if you're an unbeliever, okay, if you're looking at your life and you're saying, God has never disciplined me, that's not a good thing. That means you're an unbeliever. So if, if you're an unbeliever, you have no right to the father's inheritance. You are not married to the father's son. And upon your death, you will not be welcomed into heaven, but sent to hell. Now, because we learn to respect our earthly fathers who disciplined us, we should willingly submit to the father of spirits. Hebrews twelve nine and 10. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of Spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But He disciplines us for our good, so that we may share His holiness. Now the title Father of Spirits there in Hebrews 12, 9, and 10 depicts God as the creator of the soul and spirit. It is the soul and spirit of an individual that lives on after the body dies. God's discipline is a guarantee... That you have received life, specifically eternal life. Now, the discipline from an earthly father is for a short time. That is the period of adolescence. During adolescence, parents disciplined their children according to what seemed best to them. They were not perfect. Sometimes parents have administered discipline that was too severe. Sometimes they disciplined or administered discipline out of anger. But at the end of the day, while chastening is not pleasant, it is profitable. When God the Father disciplines, it is never capricious, too severe, or out of anger. His discipline is always for the good of His children. And what is good for God's children, what is good for you and me, is that we share His holiness. And that takes us right back to 1 Peter 1, verses 15 and 16. Earthly fathers discipline their children to behave appropriately. God disciplines His children to become holy like Him. Now, returning to the opening phrase of verse 17, Since believers call upon their Father to assist and protect them, and since they know that He is their judge, they are to conduct themselves in fear. Now conduct is to behave oneself in a particular manner. How you and I are to behave is in fear. This fear is a reverence that moves a child to obey his or her parents. And as children of God, we reverence our Father by seeking to please Him in our daily conduct. Fear of God causes us to cleanse ourselves from sin and grow in holiness. 2 Corinthians 7, one. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Verse 17 ends with the phrase, Your stay on earth and highlights the fact that we are temporary residents in this world. It goes right back to verse 1 of 1 Peter 1. We have our citizenship in heaven, Philippians 3.20. Our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is that heavenly citizenship that creates a barrier between us as believers and the unbelievers. Because our residency in this world is temporary, we cannot, we must not adopt the culture of the people among whom we live. We are to behave ourselves in a hostile world with reverence for God. That means that we are to be obedient to our Heavenly Father even when life makes it difficult. Can you say that today? Can you say that you are obedient to your heavenly Father when life makes it difficult? When it's easy to compromise, do you compromise? When it's easier to go along with the crowd, do you go along with the crowd? Or are you holy? Are you setting yourself apart? Again, when when you're challenged to be holy, consider the chastening of God your Father and Judge. And let that motivate you to be holy as He is holy. The second motivation for holy living is the cost of redemption. So the first motivation for holy living is the chastening of God our Father and Judge. The second motivation is the cost of redemption. 1 Peter one 18 to 18-21, Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold from your futile way of life, inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. And through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Again, the second motivation for holy living is the cost of redemption. Redeemed, Lutrao, is primarily used in the New Testament of the work of redeeming sinners from slavery to sin. To Peter's Jewish readers, Lutrao caused them to recall the Old Testament scriptures, particularly dealing with their redemption from Egypt. In the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures, Lutrao translates three Hebrew terms. Kopher, Gael, and Peda. The Hebrew term kofar is used of the payment made to cover or atone for sin. Psalm forty nine, seven and eight, no one, no man can by any means redeem his brother or give God a ransom, a covering, a kofar for him, for the redemption of his soul is costly. Gael and its derivative goal involve paying the price to reclaim a person or possession. It's specifically associated with the work of the kinsman redeemer in purchasing a family member out of slavery. Leviticus 25, 48, one of his brothers may redeem him after he has been sold. The Old Testament depicts God as a redeemer, buying back his people from punishment in hell. Psalm nineteen fourteen, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, my goal, or my kinsman redeemer. Psalm 103 verse 4 says, Who redeems, again, goel, your life from the pit. In order to be the redeemer or the goel, the kinsman redeemer of humanity, God must be a blood relative with those to whom He is redeeming. Thus the term goel foreshadows the Son of God taking on flesh and being born of the Jewish Virgin Mary. The Hebrew term peda refers to transferring ownership through payment of a price or substitute. Of the 69 usages of Peda, the vast majority involve the substituting of an animal for a person. For example, when God redeemed Israel from slavery in Egypt, ownership of Israel was transferred to God through the death of a firstborn lamb as a substitute. Deuteronomy 15.15, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed Peda you, therefore I command you this day. The term is also used in reference to redemption from hell in Psalm 49, 15. But God will redeem, Peda, my soul, from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. So he's going to redeem my soul by the payment of a substitute from hell. Understanding these three Hebrew terms, Kofur, Gael, and Peda, presents several aspects of redemption. One Redemption involves the recovery of persons or things, as seen in Deuteronomy Two, redemption is dependent on the power of God. As Exodus 6.6 says, I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Three, redemption demands the payment of a price or ransom to initiate the recovery of said person or thing. Psalm 49. Verse 7 and 8 again says, No man by any means can redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him, for the redemption of his soul is costly. For redemption requires an intermediary, i.e. a kinsman redeemer or goal, to secure the recovery. Now the Old Testament terms for redemption are often associated with the redemption of Israel from Egypt, but also have a messianic theme. From Job through the prophets, they looked forward to God, sending the Messiah to be the Redeemer from sin and its curse. The Messianic theme is what the Emmaus Road disciples had in mind in their discussion with Jesus. Luke twenty-four twenty-one. but we were hoping that it was He who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, beside all this, it's the third day since these things happened. Now, coming back here to our text in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 to 21, Peter compares the cost of redemption to silver and gold and says silver and gold are perishable things. That is, they are things that are subject to corruption. Silver and gold, though precious, tarnish, corrode, and lose their value. As such, they don't qualify as payments for our redemption from sin and death. Isaiah 52, verse 3 says, The Lord, you were sold for nothing. You will be redeemed without money. Acts 8, 20, Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Furthermore, and this is interesting, silver and gold in the Jewish mind. Again, Peter's writing to Jewish believers. Silver and gold were associated with idolatry. Deuteronomy 29, 17, Moreover, you have been you have seen their abominations and their idols of silver and gold. Daniel 5.23, you have praised the gods of silver and gold, which don't see, hear, or understand. Hence, Peter is saying, you are not redeemed with idols. He goes on to say, not only did idols not redeem them, but they were redeemed from their futile way of life. Life before redemption was futile or utterly worthless. And futility is a well-known theme in Ecclesiastes and often associated with pagan idols. In Ecclesiastes 2, 8 and 11, Solomon said, I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. Thus I considered all my activities which my hand had done and the labor which I had exerted. And behold, all was vanity were futility and striving after wind and there was no profit under the sun. Solomon's mention here of silver and gold along with the treasures of kings is a reference to the various idols, the silver and gold, and dowries, the treasures of kings, which came with the many wives and concubines he acquired. Upon reflection, Solomon states that the idols were vanity or futile. And it's interesting, the term "vanity" here, the, the Hebrew term chebel is translated elsewhere in the Old Testament for idol." Deuteronomy 32:21, "They have made me jealous with what is not God. they have provoked me to anger with their idols, with their kebel, with their vanities, with their futilities." Solomon's truth is that false gods are utterly worthless to redeem humanity from the enslavement of sin. Now, for the Jewish believers to whom Peter was initially writing, their former way of life was wrapped up in Pharisaism. Thus, Peter equates Pharisaism with paganism. Pagan Pharisaism asserted that self-righteousness was the means of entering the kingdom of God, a view repudiated by the Messiah. Matthew 5.20, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. This Pharisaism was inherited from their forefathers. Their ancestors passed down a tradition of oral legends, which eventually were codified into the Mishnah. And Peter's point is that no matter how ancient or precious their oral traditions were, like silver and gold idols, they were worthless because they could not redeem anyone from sin. We have been released from the bondage of sin through the payment of a price. And the price is the blood of Christ. Ephesians 1, 7, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace. The verb letrao, that verb for redeem, in the context of 1 Peter 1.18 is in the aorist tense and passive voice. The aorist tense indicates that the payment of the price is a completed action. It's not an ongoing process. Jesus is not continuously being offered again and again. He offered himself as a sacrifice once for all time. Hebrews 7.27, Who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. The passive voice indicates that believers receive redemption as a result of the payment. Jesus paid the price for every lawless deed committed by you and I and in turn purifies us from sin. Titus 2:14 who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession zealous for good deeds. This ransom was not paid to Satan but God. It was God who was offended. It was God who was wronged, and therefore the payment or restitution needed to be paid to God. Now by invoking the term blood, Again, we're not redeemed by silver and gold idols from our futile or our idolatrous way of life. We're redeemed from that way of life by the blood of Christ. And by invoking that term, blood, Peter is drawing us back to the sacrifices of the Old Testament where the shedding of blood was necessary for atonement. Peter states that Christ's blood is precious or of great worth. To underscore the great worth of His blood, Christ compares Christ's blood to that of a lamb unblemished and spotless. Again, for His Jewish readers, this phrase would have invoked memories of Passover. Exodus 12, 5, Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. A Passover lamb had to be unblemished and without defect or spot. Unblemished means to be free from any internal spot, or sin. Spotless refers to being free from external spot or sin. Just as the Passover lamb was flawless, internally and externally, so is Christ unblemished and spotless, that is, without internal or external sin. That is, Jesus did not have internal sin, i.e. a sin nature, nor did he have external sin, i.e. acts of sin. John 1838, Pilate said, "What is truth?" And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, "I find no guilt in him." Hebrews 4:15, "For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. As well, the Passover Lamb died as a proxy. So Christ died as a substitute for humanity. Matthew 20:28, 20, "Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom that's lutron, redemption, for many." Now the term "for there in Matthew 2028, 20, it's the little Greek word anta means "in the place of, and highlights the substitutionary aspect of Jesus' sacrifice. Now, 1 Timothy 2.6 tells us that he gave himself a ransom for all. So he died for the sins of the whole world. But that substitutionary ransom is only efficacious to the many, that is, those who repent and believe, Matthew 20.28, 20, a ransom for many. Thus, Jesus is the fulfillment of the Passover lamb. First Corinthians 5, 7, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened, for Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Jesus' ministry of redemption as the Passover lamb was foreknown before the foundation of the world, Peter says. Foreknowledge here refers to prior acknowledgement. Before the foundation of the world refers to eternity past. Thus, an eternity past." God decreed the program of redemption, which included His Son as the Redeemer of humanity. As Peter preached on Pentecost, Christ's death was not plan B, a twist of fate, or a panicked response to humanity's sin. Instead, it was the predetermined plan of God. Acts 2.23, this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to the cross. Now Christ the Redeemer has appeared in these last times. What was planned in eternity past now becomes a reality in the present. The term times, chronos, refers to consecutive periods of human history. Last defines this current period as the concluding part of a series of events in salvific history. Further, these last times began when Christ appeared or was revealed at His Incarnation. Galatians 4, 4, and 5. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Hebrews 1, 1, and 2. God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days, has spoken unto us in His Son. See, Christ appeared as the Redeemer during His first advent for the sake of you. In other words, the pre-planned redemption of humanity foretold by the prophets, watched by the angels, and accomplished by Christ occurred for the benefit of God's chosen. Because we have been bought with a price, we have an obligation to glorify God and be holy. 1 Corinthians 6.20 You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. The result of Christ's redemptive work was fourfold. First, the text tells us that Christ was raised from the dead. That is, the Father raised the Son up from the dead. Second, God gave Him glory. The Father restored the Son's glory to its pre-incarnate state. The Shekinah glory, which had been veiled at Christ's incarnation, was now unveiled. The resurrection and glorification of Christ demonstrates the Father's acceptance of His redemptive work. That Christ first suffered and then was resurrected and glorified strengthens you and me when we're scattered and suffering. Third, through him, that is, Christ, individuals are made believers in God. By dying and shedding his precious blood, Christ redeemed us from enslavement to sin and death. The cost of redemption was so magnificent, no individual could ever pay it. Knowing redemption's enormous cost, we are therefore motivated to obey God and live holy lives. Fourth, Believers now have faith and hope in God. It is by faith that we experience salvation, and it is through hope that we receive our inheritance. By focusing on His resurrection and glorification, you and I have hope that beyond the sufferings of this life, there is a resurrection unto life, that is eternal life, and glorification in the presence of God. As believers, let us consider the cost of our redemption. Let's remember the words of Francis Ridley Havergal's hymn, Verse 1 says, I gave my life for thee, my precious blood I shed, that thou might ransom be, and quickened from the dead, I gave, I gave my life for thee, what hast thou given for me? Friends, you would do well to consider the question, what hast thou given for me? What have you given for God? He's redeemed you, with the precious blood of His dear Son. You need to give Him a holy life. Believers, we are called to be holy like God. And when you're struggling to find the motivation to be holy, consider the chastening of God, your Father and Judge, and the cost of redemption, the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Perhaps the reason you're struggling with holiness is that you've never been chastened or disciplined by God. Friend if you've never been disciplined by God Then the reality is you cannot be holy Because God has not redeemed you It's high time then Consider the cost of redemption Consider that precious blood of the lamb Christ paid that price By pouring out his blood in death To redeem you from damnation In the lake of fire Friend now's the time to repent of your sin And believe that Christ died Was buried and rose again on the third day Let's pray Our Father in heaven We thank you and praise you that, Lord, not only have you told us to be holy, you've given us the motivation to be holy. That motivation, Lord, because one, you're a chastening father and judge whom you love, you chasten. And Father, while I don't think any of us would raise our hand to say, I love or we love to be spanked by you, Lord, we're thankful when we are because it's a sign that you love us And if you love us, then we're your children. And if we are your children, we're the redeemed. And so, Father, if there's someone here listening that's acknowledging they've never been punished, they've never been disciplined, chastened by you, then, Father, I pray that they might examine themselves, that they might come to that cross of Calvary, Lord, and consider the cost of redemption, look at that precious blood, and realize because of their sin, they are cursed, to hell and the lake of fire they cannot redeem themselves they cannot ransom themselves they cannot pay the price that is due the price that is due is precious blood sinless blood and that sinless blood it can only be given through the spotless lamb of god jesus christ and so father if someone's listening i pray, lord that even now in the quietness of their heart they would cry out to you for forgiveness of their sin and putting their faith and trust in the work of Jesus Christ, dying and shedding His blood, buried and rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that, Father, they would go forth and walk in newness of life. Lord, I pray for each of us scattered believers suffering in a hostile world, that, Father, when we're tempted to compromise, when we're tempted to go along with the crowd, when we're tempted to flat out disobey, that, Lord, we might be motivated by the cost of redemption and the chastening of our Father and Judge, and that, Lord, we would go on to be holy as you are holy. We pray in your Son's precious name. Amen.